The morning scripture reading is from the book of Matthew uh, 1 through 8. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God. Most, uh, most examples of, of good entertainment usually include a, a build-up, a crescendo. You ever notice that? Like if you go to a concert, do they start with the main event? No, they usually have some opening act that's not quite as good, right? They don't have the full sound system on or all the lasers plugged in because they, they want the event to, to build. In, in sports entertainment, you know, the playoffs or tournaments build in excitement as they go along. Movies, literature, just good stories build to a payoff. You've noticed that, right? Well, Matthew, as a good storyteller, he does the same thing. His, in sort of the big picture way, the story of the book of Matthew uh, starts slow. I mean, you can't start much slower than starting with a genealogy, which is how Matthew started. You, you know your story is going to build if you start with a de- genealogy, but it builds all the way to this, this conflict starting today where we're at, this conflict between Jesus and his enemies will build and build and build until his arrest and these trials. And then it seems like at the end, like the hero doesn't get away. He, he gets executed. But then Matthew builds again the resurrection of Jesus. And, and really he builds toward his last speech that Jesus gives. We call it the Great Commission. Matthew, he just... Because he's a good storyteller. He understands how to, how to set up a story and make it sort of build to the payoff. He does it on a small scale too. And he's been doing it over the last three weeks. Today we're sort of at the, the payoff of a series of three miracles that Matthew has designed to crescendo. It doesn't really seem like it to us, but that's what he's doing, I think. He started... Three or two weeks ago, Jesus was out in a boat and there's this terrible storm and waves are crashing over the boat and he calms that storm and instantly that sea, the Sea of Galilee, that huge lake, goes from waves crashing over the boat to just calm as glass. And that's pretty impressive. And then the next week after they get across the lake, Jesus casts some demons out of a couple of guys, and Jesus shows his authority over the demonic world, which in Matthew's way of thinking is even more impressive than his control over nature and the laws of physics. And then today, in that story John just read for us, Jesus 
kind of two things. He heals a guy, but he declares that his sins are forgiven. And if we were going to rate these things on the impressiveness scale, this one might not be the most impressive, but for Matthew it is. He's saving the best for last. The universal offer of forgiveness, not the offer of universal forgiveness, but the universal offer of forgiveness is the main distinctive of biblical Christianity. This, this system, this faith system that Jesus is founding here in the book of Matthew is really the only faith system that says there is a way for all of your sins to be completely wiped out from your record. Jesus doesn't offer a way to start over. Do this and we'll start you over from scratch and then we'll see if you're good enough after this point. It's just complete forgiveness. It is a distinctive of biblical Christianity, and it's amazing. He's not offering a way for us to cover sin or reduce sin or try to, giving us a system of morality where our good can outweigh our bad. He gives an offer of true and complete forgiveness. That's why this is a big deal to Matthew and why he saves it in this little series of three miracles why he saved the best for last. This is the first place in Matthew that Jesus mentions the forgiveness, his offer of the forgiveness of sins. And it comes in this story of, uh, of some people carrying a paralyzed man to Jesus. It's a famous story. If you've read the other Gospels, you've read this story. It appears in three of the Gospels. Uh, we get different details in different Gospels. If you're reading this and wondering why you don't read of anybody taking the roof off so this guy can be lowered down, that's just in um, uh, one of the other Gospels. gives us that detail. Matthew left that out. But what happens here is um, after Jesus comes back from the, the, the Gentile land he was just in, he lands, we're told, in his own city. He's not in Bethlehem for sure. He's not even in Nazareth. The, the, the capital, the headquarters of his ministry in Galilee was in a place called Capernaum. That's where this is. He's probably ministering again in Peter's house. He's been there before ministering where Peter's uh, wife lives and Peter's mother-in-law lives. That's probably where this happens, though we're not told. And from the other Gospels, we learn that there are some friends that come carrying a guy to meet Jesus. Uh, your Bible might say that, that they are carrying him on a bed. This translation, the NET, uh, says they're, they're carrying him on a stretcher, which is probably closer to what this thing would have looked like to us. Don't think that they're carrying a four-post sleep number or anything like that. You know, they come carrying him on this, this mat, this pallet, this stretcher, and just from what it says, why, why are these guys carrying him here to see Jesus? What's wrong with the man, and, and, and what do you think these men want? What's wrong is he's paralyzed, right? He's paralyzed, and our assumption is they've heard about Jesus' healing ministry. We're told in the other Gospels that these these four guys carrying him were this man's friends. 
So here's my assumption. My assumption is this man who is paralyzed has not always been that way. He wasn't born that way. I think these are his buddies who want their buddy to have his life back. Is this a spinal cord injury? Um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, MS, I don't know. But it appears to me that this is somebody we used to do life with, and if we take him to Jesus, maybe we can do life in that way again. That's my, that's my guess of the, of the setup of this story. Now, we don't learn this in what's on the screen here, but the last thing we learned about this group is Jesus sees something when he looks at the whole group. When Jesus sees this whole group of men, guy on the stretcher, his buddies carrying him, Jesus sees faith when he looks at them. Go ahead, Sam, to the next one. My clicker's broke, so Sam's giving me, a, uh, giving me an assist back there. When Jesus saw their faith, verse 2 says, now what's interesting is I don't know what the content of their faith is was when Jesus they, here's what they didn't believe they didn't believe that Jesus died on the cross to save them from their sins because that hasn't happened yet not sure what the content of that faith was when Jesus was alive did they believe he was the Messiah and the Savior that would have been a good thing to believe for sure but Jesus sees faith in them he's encouraged by that and he approves of it and then Jesus gives an unexpected declaration sort of over this paralyzed man. He sees the faith of the whole group and then he talks just to the paralyzed guy because he's going to prove a point through this. And he says to this man on this pallet, this stretcher thing, and he he says, don't be afraid or, or have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And before I say anything else about this, I want you to notice what something this says very plainly. Jesus saw faith and he knew their sins were forgiven. In verse 2, Jesus doesn't say, I have decided to forgive your sins or even I have the authority to forgive your sins. He'll say that in a bit. But here he sees faith and just declares something that has already happened. The forgiveness of sin comes through faith. But when Jesus says what he says, I, I think the people around are surprised. Those four guys, imagine in your mind's eye, how does this go down? They finally get to see Jesus. They've carried their paralyzed buddy. And Jesus is going to see them. I don't know if he took a number or, or what, but and Jesus starts this way. Have courage. You don't have anything to be scared of. You know how your brain in a conversation can go faster than the events around you? Here's the way I think this went down. I think they were really excited mentally, emotionally, when Jesus begins to say, don't be afraid. What do you think they thought was going to happen next? I think they're thinking Jesus is going to heal this guy. But that's not what he says. He says, you don't have anything to be scared of. Your sins are forgiven. I think the air went out of their balloon, so to speak. I think they were disappointed when Jesus 
followed, have courage, my son, with your sins are forgiven. Maybe they should have been excited by that. But I don't think they were. I think maybe they would have wanted to say, you know, don't be afraid. Well, Jesus, his, you know, him dying in his sins or his, him being in his sin, that's not what we're scared of. We didn't bring him here to get a declaration that his sins were forgiven. We're believing people. We've done the temple thing, maybe. That's not what we're scared of. We're scared that our buddy's never going to walk again. Maybe we're scared we can't take care of him. We're scared he's not going to have the life we all thought he should have. We're scared he's never going to walk his daughter down the aisle, even though they didn't do that in that culture, but you get my point. That's the stuff we're scared of. They should be uh, excited with this declaration, but I don't think they are, but we don't get a chance to find out. Because in verse 3, um, we get the response of a different group of people. We never learn how this guy's buddies respond to this unexpected declaration. Don't be scared. Your sins are forgiven. You're not in your sin anymore. You are not responsible for your sin anymore. We don't get to hear their response to that because in verse 3, the response of some men who are also there at the house, their response takes center stage. They're called scribes. Uh, this translation calls them experts in the law. That's, they're like Old Testament lawyers. They're the, the world's foremost authority on the contents of what we call the Old Testament. They know the scriptures inside and out, literally forward and backward. And they hear what Jesus says about this guy's sins being forgiven. They think Jesus has been just flippantly announced forgiveness, and they don't like it at all. They say that Jesus is blaspheming, and what that means is they accuse Jesus of being seriously dishonoring to God. Blasphemy eventually will be a big part of the charges that get Jesus arrested and crucified. Being seriously dishonoring to God. The scribes, along with their buddies, the Pharisees, will eventually turn into the bad guys in the Jesus story. But before you get too hard, you're too hard on these scribes for accusing Jesus of blasphemy. I want you to see this, what just happened from their perspective. Don't, call, don't come down too hard on these guys for at least raising the possibility that Jesus could be being blasphemous. Because these guys know their Bibles. And they know what the Old Testament says about sin and forgiveness. They know that in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 43, God said this, I, even I, and in in the Hebrew there, that's just an emphasis that basically means I, me, only. I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins. The scribes know only one being can forgive sin. Who is that? God. And they also know, because they know the Old Testament, 
that God had, had prescribed some very specific steps that people who believed God had to go through so that they could have the confidence that their sin was atoned for. And I don't have time to go through all of those steps, but there's a, a Levitical system, a temple system that involved sacrifices because sin always costs blood. And, and you had to be, there had to be a priest that stood between you, sinful you, and God. And Jesus shows up and just announces this guy's sins are forgiven. He doesn't ask if these guys have done Levitical temple stuff. They think he's very flippant. They know only God can forgive sins, and they know how the scriptures said that happened. And Jesus has just proclaimed the forgiveness of sins apart from what God said should be done. Do you understand how they could think, this is blasphemous? So when Jesus announces this guy's sins are forgiven, these scribes don't like it. But it's not so much that they hate Jesus. Not yet. (laughs) That's coming. It's coming quickly. But I think it's not so much that they hate Jesus as much as they love their religion. They love their righteousness. They love that they have done the things that God says must be done for somebody to be forgiven and declared righteous. These guys miss forgiveness because they hang on too tightly to their righteousness. This guy on the mat hasn't done all the stuff we have done, and he's probably done a whole bunch of stuff we haven't done. You know why I'm righteous? I didn't do this bad stuff. I did do this good stuff. That's what makes people righteous. You can't go forgiven people who haven't done the stuff I've done. That's how you get righteous. Well, anytime we hang on to our righteousness, it makes us feel superior. It always feels better to feel better. Right? It feels better to feel better. People will always defend those things that make them feel righteous. People will always defend those things that make them feel righteous. Why is it? We, we do this today. For, for the scribes, they did Old Testament law stuff that made them feel righteous. We still do this today. Why is it that many people, if anyone, let's say a, a Christian, starts to tell people that certain behaviors they, they do are wrong, are sinful, Do people get bent out of shape by that? What do they start to say? Who are you to, who are you to judge? Right? And they'll, you know what they're defending? They're still defending their own righteousness. What makes them, someone like that, what makes them feel righteous is I am accepting. I am tolerant. I am kind. That's what makes me better than you who are judgmental and critical. We will defend that which makes us feel righteous. It always feels better to feel better. Now on the other side, 
um, especially sort of in our branch of Christianity, of the evangelical church. Our, ch- our church, not necessarily this church, but our sort of brand of Christianity, historically has gotten stuck um, defending certain things that you can't chapter and verse as being right and wrong that made us feel righteous. That's why, historically speaking, our branch of the evangelical church has defended as if it were, you know, books of the Bible, like prohibitions against things like dancing, games of chance, cards, and dice, any, um, any contact with alcohol, moving picture shows, right? And we, not we, but you can, you know, people defended those things as if they were the real biblical standards. Why? Because that's stuff I don't do that makes me feel righteous. It always feels better to feel better. And it is hard to let go of the feelings of superiority that come when we follow the rules that make us feel like makes us righteous. Does that make sense? See, what these guys missed was in their same scriptures where God said, I'm the only one who can forgive sins and the Levitical system is how that's going to work. God had also promised that was temporary. That was the Mosaic covenant and God also promised a new covenant, a new deal with people, a new covenant with Israel, and all of mankind was going to be able to have access to this. There was going to be a new access for forgiveness. These guys miss that Jesus was ushering in, he was announcing this new covenant because they were not ready to let go of their own righteousness. I mean, if, if all this stuff that I do that's made me righteous no longer makes me righteous, well, then I'm just like everybody else. I don't want to go in for that. I feel better when I feel better. That's why if, as you, if you pay attention as we walk through the rest of Matthew, pay attention to what the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what they get mad at Jesus for doing. It's always stuff that makes them feel righteous. They'll say, how come you don't wash these ceremonial washings like we do? How come you guys don't fast when and like we fast? How come you hang out with sinful people? We avoid people like that. How come you guys do stuff on the Sabbath that we would never think about doing on the Sabbath? You see what it is? It's always... That's the stuff that makes... How can you be from God and violate these things that we are convinced make someone righteous? So that's the blasphemy they, they accuse Jesus of. They think he's dishonoring God by being flippant about forgiveness. That forgiveness can happen apart from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Even though God promised someday that's the way it would be. And Jesus, notice, has a pretty strong response to these guys. Does he call them just wrong? What's he call them? He calls them evil. Evil's a strong word. 
Why do you respond with evil in your hearts? What is it that they've done that's evil? They didn't hurt anybody. What have they done? A few things that are evil here. First, when I cling, when I hang on to my behavioral righteousness to the point where I miss forgiveness, it's evil. Do you know we can do that in our personal relationships? This, this happens in a big picture way and a small picture way. In our relationship, me and you or you and, and someone else, if you, if you just keep score about who's righter and who's wronger, and that's how you decide who's the good person and who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in the relationship, if you hang on to your record of righteousness, guess what you're going to miss? Any opportunity at real forgiveness and reconciliation. You have to let go of your own righteousness to get to a place of forgiveness. These guys won't. And Jesus says, I mean, you guys are just evil. You're you're stuck in your smug self-righteousness to the point where you're going to miss the only chance at real righteousness. That's evil. Uh, Believing Jesus isn't enough for forgiveness is evil. Rejecting Jesus is evil. Jesus is drawing a very stark line here. He's telling these guys, you can either accept my way for forgiveness that's apart from what you always have done, or you can stay with yours, but I want you to know your way's evil. <laughs> See the line he's drawing? It's either my way or it's evil. And, and to draw that line sort of more, more brighter than, than, than he could have otherwise, Jesus raises a really interesting rhetorical question in verse 5. I love this question. Jesus was really, really smart. He says to the Pharisees, excuse me, to the scribes, he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? He's told this guy on the stretcher that his sins are forgiven. They get bent out of shape. And Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven to this guy or would it be easier to say, stand up and walk? Which one is easier? Do you have an answer in your mind? I'm not sure. And he never tells us. I think he has an answer that the scribes will come up with. Because if Jesus is a fake or a fraud, one of those two things is much easier to say. Which one's easier to say if you really aren't from God, you're really not the Son of God, you really aren't all-powerful? Which is the easier one to say? Your sins are forgiven. Why is that easier to say? Because it's not verifiable, right? Right? Your sins are forgiven. How do you know? I don't know. You just got to take my word for it. See, if Jesus is a fake, if Jesus is a fraud, that's the easy thing to say because you can't test it. You can't verify it. Whereas if Jesus is a fake and a fraud and he tells this guy to stand up and walk, that's a pretty easy test as to whether or not Jesus is legit. Right? Like if this were, if this were me, I, would never, I couldn't tell that guy to stand up and walk. But Jesus isn't a fake, and Jesus isn't a fraud. 
Has Jesus been healing people throughout the book of Matthew so far? Yeah. Has it seemed very difficult? Not really. What's it cost Jesus to heal people? It's been pretty easy. So I don't think that's, I don't think that's difficult at all for Jesus to say, stand up and walk. But catch this. When Jesus gets in the business of declaring that people's sins are forgiven, that ain't easy. Because here for the first time when Jesus tells somebody, you don't have anything to be scared of. Your sins are forgiven. He knows what that means for him. That he is going to have to be the sacrifice that pays the penalty for that. Someone has to die for that man's sins. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to be scared. But maybe I should be. There's absolutely nothing flippant about Jesus' declaration that this man's sins are forgiven. Because Jesus knows the scriptures better than even the scribes. He knows God is the only one who can forgive sins. And he knows the Old Testament says stuff like this too. Same book, Isaiah says, there will be no peace. Or you ever hear the saying, no rest for the wicked? You ever hear that? That's where this comes from. Uh, The word is shalom. It's a version of that form of that word. There will be no shalom for the wicked. No rest. No completeness. No peace. When someone dies in an unforgiven state, they are not going to rest in peace. You know why? Because there will be no peace. No rest for the wicked. Guess who the wicked are? Us. Everybody. The Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. It says that three different places. It says it in both the Old and the New Testament. And if you're not righteous, what are you? You're unrighteous. You're wicked. In Ecclesiastes, God promised this, or we are promised this. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing. He will judge everything, good or evil. God will punish Judge and punish every single sin. Deuteronomy 32, he says this other places too. God said this, vengeance is mine. And here's the promise. I will, what? I will repay. I will make people pay for what? For what they do that's wrong. So Jesus knows only God can forgive sin. God will punish every single sin. So how can he tell this guy, don't you, you don't have to worry. Your sins are forgiven. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ was for. It's called substitutionary atonement. Someone had to die for this man's sins. Jesus said, it will be me. When Jesus went to the cross, what was happening is God was keeping those promises we just read to punish every sin, to pour out vengeance. He just poured that out on his son so that we can understand this. I don't have to be afraid. My sins are forgiven. It's not that they didn't get punished. They just didn't get punished on me. I tell Awana kids when I try to explain this to them, you ever get a spanking? And most of them go, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. 
Well, how about this? Did you ever have a time where you were, you did something wrong and you were supposed to get the spanking, but your brother or sister ran in and said, wait, mom, would spank me instead of him? And I've never had a kid go, oh yeah, that happens. That never happens. Listen, it happened. That's the cross. Sin had to be punished. But God had also promised a way to give access to forgiveness that didn't include us being destroyed. He had to keep both sides of that promise. And they meet in the cross. That's why there was nothing flippant about this. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to stand up and walk? For Jesus, it was much more difficult to say, your sins are forgiven. Because it cost him nothing to heal this man, and it cost him everything to forgive him. But, Jesus stops right there, mid-sentence, which is easier to say, stand up and walk or your sins are forgiven. And then he doesn't even let him answer. He says, but so that you may know that me, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, stand up, take your little bed, stretch your pallet thing, and go home. And that's what happened. Why did Jesus heal this guy? Again, did he heal this guy because he had so much faith that Jesus didn't have a choice? No. It's a highlighter. He's using a highlighter again. He wants us to hear about this story someday. And he says, I'm going to do the verifiable thing so that you will believe the unverifiable thing. The man stands up. He was going to die anyway, but he wasn't going to die in his sins. And that had nothing to do with whether or not he got up and walked home. (laughs) The big deal was the forgiveness of his sins. The end of the story, verse 8, we read the, the crowd's reaction to this. This guy stands up and leaves. People freak. When the crowd saw this, they were afraid. Your Bible might say that he was, they were amazed, but the word is phobomai, which is where we get the word phobia from. They were scared. Why were they scared? Here's what they just heard. Jesus drew a line in the sand, a line in the sand and said, hey, you are either with me and my kind of forgiveness or you are evil. So you're going to have to let go of what you previously thought made people righteous and put all your eggs in this basket or you will die in your sin. You know what's scary? Changing what you've always believed was true about how good people are good people and why bad people are bad people and deciding I'm just going to trust in this wandering, traveling Jewish man. For my salvation, they were afraid. And then they honored God who had given such authority to men. Uh, You can understand that last part a couple of different ways. Either they're praising God because God has given them Jesus and he had the authority to forgive sin. Or they're praising God uh, because we can do what Jesus did in verse 2. We have the authority to do what Jesus did in verse 2. We don't have the authority to do what Jesus did in verse 6. In verse 6, Jesus said, I have the authority to forgive your sins. We can't do that. But we can do verse 2. In verse 2, Jesus saw their faith 
and said to the paralytic, you have nothing to be afraid of. Your sins are forgiven. Do you know, we have, we have that authority to encourage one another with this. If you have given evidence of your faith, you don't have anything to be scared of. Your sins are forgiven. I think maybe that's what Matthew is getting at here. Uh, one of Jesus' best friends, John. Um, go one more, Sam. Okay, go two more. Okay, go three more. There we go. One of Jesus' best friends, John, wrote a book we call First John. And toward the end, he says this to his audience. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. If, you have, if there's evidence of your faith, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, Paul said. That's what Jesus did at first. He sees their faith and says, here's some people who have nothing to worry about because their sins are forgiven. When I, talk to, when I have talked to people about this, This is the gospel, the good news, that that we can know that someday when we stand before God, we will not have any sin to answer for. None. People have a hard time believing that. Um, For a couple different reasons, sort of a positive side and a negative side. And from one side, we'll just do one. It can't be that easy. You're telling me if I just believe that no matter what I've done, sins past, present, and future, you get to have eternal life. It can't be that easy. You know what the answer to that objection is? Easy for whom? Easy for whom? There was nothing easy about your forgiveness. It's just not about you cost Jesus everything to forgive you. He was utterly destroyed because of what you had done, because of what I had done. And here's what he said. You believe in this brand of forgiveness that I offer, and you can know that ultimately and eternally you have nothing to be scared of from God because I swallowed the punishment you deserve. That is the gospel. And it was not easy. It just wasn't us who accomplished it. Now, once a month, and again, I am not smart enough or organized enough to plan these things ahead of time, but I'm so glad this was the passage that came on Sunday when we celebrate communion. Because what we celebrate when we come to this table is what Jesus did to take away our fear. In a few minutes when the guys come forward, we're going to pass around a couple of things that are simply, they are merely symbols of the high cost of our forgiveness. The first one that will come around is is bread. And Jesus used bread as a symbol for his body. And he broke it. He gave it to his friend. This is what I'm going to do for you. 
because the cost of forgiveness is so high. And then he picked up a cup with the blood of grapes in it and said, this is like my blood that was poured out under the wrath of God for the forgiveness of sins. And when we do what we do here, here's what we're doing. We're taking that gospel I just talked about, how that takes away the fear of our judgment. And we're eating it and drinking it, not because there are any magical powers involved. Because what we're doing is we're saying to God, I trust in your body and your blood. I trust in the sacrifice of Christ to take away my fear of standing before you someday. I want to, I'm taking that message and internalizing it and gobbling it up. Because what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, the guys come forward, pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you found a way to keep both kinds of your promises. The promise that you are just, that justice will be served, that sins will be punished, that nothing, nobody gets off scot-free. But then keeping your promise to give us a way to be forgiven of our sins. And both of those meet at the cross where you poured out your vengeance, every drop, onto your Son, and then invited us to participate in in His resurrection, the victory over sin. And we're here right now, Lord, to spend some time remembering, reminding ourselves that there's nothing flippant about the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing easy about the forgiveness of sins. In fact, it was so difficult, we could never accomplish it, so you had to do it for us. And so, Lord Jesus, our King, our Master, our friend, we thank you for what you did, and we remember. Commune with us while the bread comes around, in Jesus' name, amen.